Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning. Um, We're grateful that you provided this space as a means to worship you. And Lord, we also acknowledge that there are many things in our lives and in our heads and in our hearts that are warring within us, that are trying to steal the attention and the time and the words and the thoughts that we need to be giving to you right now. So Lord, do a work in us. Help silence the chaos inside. Lord, allow us to hear your word. Lord, allow it to change and transform our hearts, we pray, as we go into your words from Matthew this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible. If you have a device, we use the ESV on the U version. And you want to go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. So we are about two months into our Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, man, there's just something about the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus gathering his disciples after he started his public ministry. He's getting them. They're, they're coming to the top of the hill with him. And he just preaches this very long, very extended sermon that we've been going through the past two months. And gosh, there's something about the words of Jesus Um, especially in the things that we've been going through. If you've noticed the last two months, there's something about this sermon that just sort of of excavates the soil of our hearts, doesn't it? Um, It's something that sort of digs up things and uh, opinions that we've had about the way that we are supposed to be living as believers in this world. Right? There's, there's a way that we're supposed to be living because God has come in and changed our hearts through Christ. And what Jesus does is he sort of digs out those preconceived notions and those false conceptions we have of what living for Jesus really is. He kind of turns them on their head and he instructs us with how now, how then should we be living? And so, uh, man, some of these things just come down and they, they just kind of feel like a thump. On the head, because basically he's giving us two options most of the time, isn't he? He's basically saying, You could live this way, but now I'm calling you to live this way. And so there's a sense where he sort of gets in and he unearths and sort of toils up all the the dirt in our hearts. And we react to that kind of strongly, don't we? Because it was such a nice piece of dirt, we say, right? And that's true sometimes. But at the same time, it is dirt, isn't it? And its intention is to build something in and on that dirt. And so what we've seen is that Jesus has been giving extreme examples of the choices we make to live as Christians. And the two roads that we consistently have laying before us. And he calls the ways that we're supposed to treat one another as a way that gives evidence to the change that's happened in our hearts. We're part of a culture that lives off the earnings of Jesus. That's what the church is. Do you know that? We're part of a culture that lives off of the earnings of somebody else. In this case, it's Jesus. And then we can use those earnings to the benefit of those who follow Jesus. But it's a process. And so what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's taking us through what will be a process in our lives. 
And one of those things, one of those processes that we see in the church is that the church does not have a great reputation for treating each other well, do we? You know, as, as much as we wish it was, most people's impression of us is not like the final scene in The Grinch that stole Christmas, is it? With all the who's standing in a circle, holding hands, singing, welcome Christmas, and those words that nobody knows what they're saying that come after that, right? One of the most common complaints that you hear from people, both in and outside of the church, is the J word. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus right there either, but being judgmental. I mean, last time I checked, the church has never been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, right? We have a problem coming out and attacking one another. It's something that if you talk to the outside world, they think we have a reputation for actually doing that, right? That's how well known we are to those that don't come to church. And so what we're going to look at today is one of these classic verses that has become really one of the most misused and abused verses in the Bible. So I'm glad we have the opportunity to discuss what it means to judge others. Because we are all guilty of judging others. I mean, there ain't none of you in here that hasn't judged anyone or had, didn't judge somebody this morning. It's something that's sort of built in to the framework of who we are. So we want to get that out of the way right off the top. Is that we are people that struggle with coming out and judging and condemning others. I mean, I remember after I became uh, sort of this ardent Bible reader in high school. Man, I just started judging my parents for all the things that they were doing wrong. All of a sudden now, like, I had the clue. I knew what was going on. Have you ever been around newlyweds who start doling out hard marriage advice because everybody's getting their relationships wrong now but them because they've been married for four months? You ever experienced that? And seminary students, so they're the worst. I mean, they are literally the worst. They got a little Bible in them, and they just use it to destroy everybody in their, in their wake. But here's the thing about judgment, about judging, about that word that gets so loosely just tossed around like frisbees in our life. Judgment, it forgets. Judgment forgets forgiveness. Judgment doesn't consider compassion. Judgment places relationship behind self-righteousness. And what happens is we become hypocritical very, very fast. So let's pick up Matthew 7, verse 1, and says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's stop right there. And what the word judge here in Matthew means, it actually means to condemn. It means to decree something against somebody. It means to decide something about somebody. It's to sentence somebody like a judge. It's to decree, to declare someone guilty. And so a couple of notable things about even just the first two verses of this passage. Number one, first... It seems to be the one scripture that people who don't believe in the Bible use when it's time to quote something from a book they don't believe in, oddly enough. They like to remind everybody, the Bible says you have no right to judge or condemn me for my actions, is what they will say. Well, is that true? 
we need to realize that in this passage, Jesus is talking about how believers are to treat other believers. So let's keep that in mind as we dive into this text. Secondly, it's a verse that people who believe the Bible like to use when they are offended for being called out on their sin. I mean, and that happens in the reverse, too. Have you ever machine gunned that verse at someone before? And that's what they come back at you with? Who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me anything about what's wrong in my life? And then thirdly, it's a verse that people who believe the Bible use when they're too afraid to call out another believer on their sin. In other words, they say, I know what you're doing is wrong, but who am I to judge? After all, I'm a sinner too. So what does Jesus mean when he says, judge not that you be not judged? I know he gets a little Yoda there with the wording. Judge not that you be not judged. First off, Jesus has been discussing some things leading up to this. He's been discussing religious hypocrisy. He's been discussing things like wise use of money. Last week, Pastor Jeff taught you guys about worry, about anxiety over things that God says and promises that he will provide for you. Today, he's warning us against doing something that only God can do, which is to judge the heart and make a judgment based on the knowledge of knowing the state of another person's heart. The Lord tells us in the book of Jeremiah that he searches the heart and tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So this is something exclusively given to God within the definition that we'll learn more about as we go along. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So God's going to take judgment seriously as he enacts it upon people that are calling for it. And then Romans 2.16 shows us that God's grace relieves us of the burden of judgment because it says God judges the secrets of men. So basically what we're learning here, even from the beginning, is that only God knows the thoughts. Only God knows what you're thinking. Only God knows what is lodged into the deeper recesses of your heart. And so when judgment is rightly defined, it becomes hypocrisy for those who just dole it out, right? Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, it's like he's pointing a finger, you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's talking about acting there. He's talking about hypocrisy. So the instruction to those who follow Jesus is that they leave the harsh sentencing of another sin in the hands of God so that they're not blind to the ways their own sin might condemn them. So in other words, a heart concerned about the sin of others more than its own illustrates a heart that doesn't own its own sin. I was trying to get the old Dr. Seuss on you right there. But a heart concerned about the sin of others more than its own illustrates a heart that's not owning its own sin. And what that does is that creates a burden on us that Christ on the cross has actually relieved us from. Judging creates a burden of anxiety. Kind of what you guys learned last week. It creates a burden of anxiety that comes from believing we're in control of the spiritual condition and outcome of those around us. All right? The Pharisees did this. We see religious leaders do this today, don't they? You're going to see it a lot now as we get 
into the presidential race. They pronounce judgments on people for not living up to the standards of the law that they have decided are the ones that make a person righteous. Are you one of those? Am I one of those? Yeah, I am. I do that. That's something that has been characteristic of me through the years. New Christians have reputations for doing this. Old Christians have reputations for doing this. I heard you say this. I saw you watch that. I saw you drinking this. I saw you dressed up as that last night. Jesus is telling us not to condemn or conclude, but to consider. He's saying not to decree or decide, but discern. Because the judgment you use will be used on you. And the measure you use to weigh another's sins will be the measure used on you because you are not seeing yourself in the correct light that God sees you in. And so Jesus picks up in verse 3, explaining sort of the backward logic of what we're talking about right now, the backward logic of hypocrisy. He says in 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? We'll stop right there. What Jesus is saying is that since we're sinners, it's easy to see the sin in others while excusing sin in ourselves that's worse than the sin we're condemning in others. And he uses this, this, this phrasing, this analogy of a speck and a log. And it's actually Jesus using kind of this ridiculous illustration to warn us and his followers about being hypocrites. Because we tend to be blind to our own sin. While somehow conveniently able to more easily see it in others. Because we're not confessing our sin as we should. It's much easier to look at somebody look at their lifestyle and make assumptions about what they're doing than to face up in the mirror and go, oh, I do many of those same things, don't I? I need to account for my own sin because it's very easy for me because I'm a sinner to look at somebody else's and pull that up into focus, isn't it? Let's go to 2 Samuel. We have a great story in the Old Testament from King David. That goes into a 2 Samuel chapter 12. You want to go all the way to your left and back. 2 Samuel 12. And that'll be verse 1. And here's the thing what we're going to be looking at is David is a guy that is in a mess. This dude is a mess right now. This is a guy that has committed adultery. This is a guy that killed the husband of the woman he committed adultery with, and then he just sort of skated along and hoped the whole thing would disappear. Now, back in those days, uh, Israel would have people called prophets and priests who would hear from the Lord, and when the Lord instructed them to say something, they had to go say it. And they needed to say exactly what God told them to say. So God tells the prophet Nathan back then, you need to go call our boy David on what's going on in his heart, because he just thinks that I've forgotten about this thing, and here's the thing, I have not. 
So here's picking up right here in verse 1. The Lord said, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men. So he starts out giving him a story. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. And lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. So this is a man that grew up this lamb. And it was part of the family. It was like a pet. It's like our dogs. It's like our cats. It's somebody that's with us. It's almost like a person to us. And then in verse 4, it says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb... And prepared it for the man who would come to him. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan. As the Lord lives. The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Verse 7. Nathan said to David. You are The dude, paraphrase. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And he goes on to lay out the sins that David committed. So what sin does is it blinds us to our own sin, but it causes us at the same time to become enraged when we see somebody else not living up to the standard that even we are not living up to. And Jesus is saying, beware of this type of spiritual blindness that comes out in judgment against others. And man, Christians are really susceptible to this, aren't we? Man, we're so susceptible to this. We all have times where we think we've been elected the resident judge of our churches, don't we? And it's usually those times when we feel like, man, we're just killing it spiritually, right? We're unstoppable at community group. We haven't missed our daily devotionals in weeks, right? I mean, we're tithing money like Bill Gates giving to new charitable organizations, right? I mean, we're posting scripture verses on Facebook like we've written a new version of the Bible. We're doing it. But before we know it, we've turned into the judge. We've turned into Judge Judy. Remember her? Our righteousness has turned into self-righteousness. And it puts blinders on our sin. And it's like this. Have you ever spent all day with people in a meeting? Maybe you're part of a company that spends all day in meetings. Or maybe you deal with customers you, you work a very public job and you get home and you look in the mirror and you realize you had a mustard stain right on the front of your shirt the whole day. Or you had food stuck in your teeth. And what you do is you flash back to all the people you spoke to and wish you could die. It's humbling, isn't it? You guys are like, you're, something's on you right now, Martin. You better look down. But what it shows is that you've missed something, doesn't it? It shows that you're not all that. You wore nice clothes, but you're human. You're a big man, 
but there's ketchup all over the front of your pants, right? That kale salad that made you feel so empowered at lunch is stuck in your teeth. That's what's going on right now. So what happens is Jesus now continues in verse 5 to tell us what we're called to do instead of cast judgment on others because of our spiritual blindness. Because anytime Jesus commands us not to do something, he tells us what we are to do. Because it's all well and good to not be the judge, jury, and executioner. But are we called to silence when we see people we love going against the laws of God out of fear of being judgmental? Does not being judgmental mean not being confrontational? Are we so afraid of being pushy that we think being passive is the answer instead? Let's deal with some of those questions. Here's what Jesus says in verse 5. You want to go back to our text in Matthew. He says this in verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he's really saying here is confess your own sin so that you can come to your brother or sister in humility over their sin. So here's how Jesus answers the question between judging someone and loving someone. Because nowhere does it say that we should never go graciously after each other's sins, does it? It says that we should never go after someone to condemn them for their sin. Because grace mandates something in our lives as the church. Grace mandates that when we see somebody we have a relationship with in sin, we should go to them and call them to repentance. In fact, to not do so would be sinning in the same way as if you judged them. Have you ever thought about that? This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us as a church and for you to be involved in community groups. Because as you get to know other people, as you grow with them relationally, as you grow more vulnerable with them, you allow others to come to you and speak into your life because they're able to see the food in your teeth. They're able to see the mustard stains on your shirt and other things you're unaware of in your heart that you're blind to, that you should, and that you need to be aware of. It's how God uses us to reveal sin in our lives and to call sin out of our lives. So when you approach a friend, it won't be to condemn them, but to call them to the same forgiveness that you've received. And that's what Jesus means here when he's saying, don't judge, but yet remove the log out of your own eye so that you're able to go to your brother or sister and help them remove the speck out of their own. There is a difference between judging and coming alongside of somebody, isn't there, and showing them mercy and grace. And then we get to verse 6 here, which is our final verse of the morning. And he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So with all of that, Jesus is saying we need to be careful about the people that we go to with the good news of the gospel, the people that we go to to try to instruct and try to walk alongside. The verse is saying that we need to use discernment, knowing that some people are so hardened against receiving the good news of Christ that it can easily lead us 
to start casting judgment on them as well. So one of the marks that we have as Christian maturity is that when trusted believers call you out on your sin, you receive it rather than become repelled by it. But people who have not trusted Christ for their salvation, they're not able to do this. So what Jesus is saying here is be discerning. Let the humility of Christ give you a pause and propel you into prayer. We're not called to police people. We're not. We're not called to police people, but to be patient with them. But for people who aggressively reject the gospel, Jesus tells us to pull back from them. He's saying, be discerning. He'll handle the judgment that will eventually, unfortunately, if they stay unrepentant, come upon them. But at the same time, we need to be discerning because we can't be putting our energy towards people that have put up a sign that says, stay away and you better not get any closer. So be discerning. Because what he's talking about here are brothers and sisters who through love and trust and a relationship with Christ and then us will be able to eventually receive the grace and mercy that we extend to them when we see that something's off in them. Do you guys see what I'm saying? It's a good and gracious thing. So what I want to do is I want to end with two things for us to consider because we have all appointed ourselves to Supreme Court justices of men's souls. And some of this is going to be a little reflection because we've gone over some of these things. But I think there's two spiritual blindnesses that we need to be aware of with this text. It's calling out for us. And I think it's crucial because all of the disunity typically that you see within a church body, we have not experienced really a lot of that because we're still a new church. But on the horizon... What you see a lot with church disunity and divisiveness and division are people casting judgment on other people. It's self-righteousness that creates sort of those lines in the sand that either say you better cross that line or you better not cross that line. So we got to be really careful of this because Jesus is pretty emphatic with the way that he explains this to us, isn't he? But there's two spiritual blindnesses that I think that we need to be aware of. Number one... Very obviously, judging other sins. And this is when we are so blissfully unaware of our own sin that we become indignant. We demand justice and condemnation for others. They need to be punished, javelin down. The problem is that your hunger for justice says more about your sin than the sin you're condemning another for. It's spiritual blindness. And remember, Jesus is talking about our brother's and our sisters in Christ. And what about the other way? Maybe you're somebody that feels like, I've been judged. I feel like I've been judged unfairly. I've talked to people with substance who've told me that they've left other churches that they felt judged by. I felt everybody was looking at me. I felt like everybody was condemning me. Well, two things with that. Number one, be aware that you just made your own judgment against them by leaving. And two... You mistakenly believe, hear what I'm saying right here. You mistakenly believe that they had any power to condemn you. They don't, and they didn't. So two spiritual blindnesses. The first one is judging other sins. The second one is justifying other sins. So we don't want to judge, clearly. But we don't want to justify, either. Spiritual blindness includes always 
wanting to be liked too, doesn't it? Somebody's living in a way they shouldn't, but you hide behind the who am I to judge mantra. And that's spiritual blindness as well. Grace doesn't welcome sin, it warns against it. That's what grace does. Jesus is loving us enough to warn us right now in this sermon against our own sin of judging people in this sermon. So the question is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to do that? James 5 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So a follower of Christ doesn't judge, he doesn't justify, but he does show Jesus. Because our judgment or justification will both ultimately come from God, right? And when we look at the cross, Jesus took the judgment reserved for our sins on himself and extended us mercy. There was no log or beam in his eye because he was sinless and able to see perfectly into the depths and destructive region of our own heart and know that the only way we would not be punished was if he took the punishment. This should sober us, shouldn't it? When we find ourselves quick to cast condemnation on others. James 2 says... For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But he says mercy triumphs over judgment. The Christian doesn't have to judge anyone. Because our judgment has been received by Jesus for us. The non-Christian will inevitably become a judge. Because they have no one but themselves to justify them. But since we've been justified by Jesus, we can treat others like the judge has treated us. He gave us Jesus to justify us and the Holy Spirit to round out the package to reveal to us when we're judging or justifying others in ways that aren't godly. So here's the big picture. Because of Christ, Christians have become acquainted with the judge. Not only that, but now we're friends with the judge. We don't just go back, you know, into our lives. He doesn't just go back into his chambers, pointing his finger at us, saying, make sure you don't do that again. Make sure you stay out of trouble. That's not what the righteous judge is doing. This is a judge who invites you to his house to party with him and his friends and to Thanksgiving dinner with his family, and likes you so much that he even writes you into his will. That's the judge who has justified us. So our relationship to him is such that we want others to have that same relationship with him that we have. When our sin is clear to us, it means that Christ is most dear to us. Judging is blindness. Mercy is kindness. So let's strive, shall we, to be a church that hates our sin as much as we love those who've been forgiven by their sin as much as we have. Those who are in Christ are not judged. Praise God. Extend that to your brothers and sisters.
Let's remember this. Let's remember the judge has justified us. We're not condemned, nor do we need to be the condemners. Because in Christ, all have been justified who put their trust in him. Amen? Let's pray.